The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. See, is that working? Yes. <clears throat> so I really am happy to be here this morning. <laughs> there was uh, an accident on the freeway that I was on this morning, so <clears throat> there was about five miles of backup. <laughs> That's like zero miles per hour, per hour right? <clears throat> As someone said, it's a good time to practice. (laughs) And it's useful because this morning what we're going to talk about is seeing things as they are. Seeing things as they are. Last week we talked about doing equanimity practice. And in those phrases was a phrase, despite what I may wish to be true, things are as they are. May I see things just as they are. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on things as they are, right? What do we mean by that? What do we mean, things as they are? You know, in Buddhism, there's no, um, there's no absolute. There's nothing that says, this is true, this is always true, it will always be true, has always been true. Because we have the concept of impermanence, that everything is constantly changing. All of the things that we can experience, that we take in through our senses, change. It all changes. So, how does that impact things as they are? First of all, it tells us that things as they are are changing all the time. <laughs> you know, So sometimes... What we mean by things as they are has to do with what we believe about them. Now, I'm sitting here, and I understand what I mean by sitting here, and, you know, pretty solid. I know what this is, and we all kind of agree, more or less, that sitting means, you know, you've got yourself deposited on some firm surface. We've, we've got, we kind of agree about what those meanings are. But is it true? Maybe I'm not sitting here. Maybe I'm perching here. Maybe I'm almost not sitting here. There are lots of things that we mean when we use words, and sometimes those get in the way of what we think of as things as they are. And then there's the question of whether I'm right about what I think. We typically call this delusion, and it isn't the sense of right or wrong. It's in the sense of misinterpreting what we see misinterpreting the information that we get in. And we say that's deluded behavior. And the awakened mind is the mind that recognizes delusion. Notice I did not say the mind that is totally undeluded. (laughs) The awakened mind is the mind that recognizes delusion, that recognizes how I am shaping how I say things are. There was a story uh, in the New York Times yesterday. You probably all are aware of this particular story where there was a a politician running for office in Missouri who announced that um, women who got pregnant from rape actually weren't raped. Because if you get pregnant 
then that means you weren't raped because you have to agree or you don't get pregnant. And I'm thinking about how convoluted this thinking is. Or there was another story about a young man whose death was ruled a suicide. He was shot in the head in the back of a police car, and his hands were handcuffed. Now, the decision to call that suicide really strains credulity. You know, you look at that and you say, whew. But, you know, both of these stories are stories that people believe. They actually believe that these things are true. And in my mind, I can't believe anybody could believe this. These stories elicit anger in me because, to me, they are completely false. They're just false. They don't meet my measure of what can rationally be considered true. In my mind, it is not things as they are. I just don't agree with those assessments. And yet there are people who believe these. Just as in the time of Galileo, everybody believed that the world was flat. This in no way affected the shape of the planet. It affected the life of Galileo a lot. Because nobody, he, would be, he, he, was, uh, he was crucified for, for knowing, crucified here using it in a general sense, for, for saying that the world was round. Now, at this point, we're all pretty sure the world is round. We've seen pictures from space of the round earth. Mm, but, you know, there are people who still believe that the moon landing was staged. Very credible people who just believe that was, you know, theater. We know that a lot of the challenges around whether the earth was round had to do with whether people were brave enough to sail off into the ocean as if they weren't going to fall off the edge. And lo and behold, they did not fall off the edge, and people have now sailed around the world or flown around the world in planes without much damage to them. They didn't fall off the edge. But there are lots of places in our lives where we have beliefs about things, and they're very close to this fear of whether I'm going to fall off the edge because I don't know what's out there. But I have beliefs about it. You know, the... the um, there are kind of three ways that we know things. One of them is through what we read, what someone teaches us, what someone tells us, what we read in the newspaper. And we believe them based on some authority, some credible authority. And we believe this is true because I believe this person. Maybe it's a temporary belief. Maybe it's a provisional relief, belief. Well, because I trust this person, I'm going to trust that what they're telling me is true. There's an element of trust and belief. Then there's another way of learning about what is true that has to do with personal reflection. Well, if this is true and that is true, then the next thing may be true. So that's the provision on which we decide to sit down in a chair. Well, I've learned that something that is shaped like a chair that I can sit in, and until I find one that is defective and fall on the floor, I'm going to believe that I can sit down in a chair and it's going to feel fine. Okay, so there's belief. And the third way has to do just with experience, which is that 
I keep sitting down, and I keep finding myself in this position so I can believe that, and I can say that that's true, that when I sit down, this is what's going to happen. So we can experience the world through our beliefs, through our reasoning, through our direct experience, and that's how we know what things are, how things are. And that works pretty good. I mean, there are things that we agree on. So, so this is a glass of water, right? Well, will you all give me that this is a glass of water? Now, that's true as long as we're speaking English. If we were speaking another language, you'd call it something else. But we have an idea about what a glass is. Now, from the point of view of what I can actually experience of this object, I have a cylinder. It's kind of cool. Feels feels dampish on the outside. It's irregular. It has these little grooves in the side, and it's it's heavy. It's got some weight. And oh, there's, I can feel something in here. It's wet. It's wet. I can taste it. Doesn't have any smell. Okay, so I I have input from what's here. I can tell that it's both hard and smooth and irregular. And oh, but there's this soft wet stuff, right? which is the water in the glass. So, so now when I'm talking about this, I have the physical input of my experience. The physical input. Okay, that's good. I also have how I feel about this glass. I like this glass. I deliberately chose this glass because I like these little grooves down in the bottom. It makes it easier for me to hold. You know, sometimes glass slip out of my hand. So I like it. Yeah, the water tastes good. I like that. Right? Uh, I don't like that I'm afraid I'm going to drop it. That feeling is here, too. I don't like that. But, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty satisfied with it. Right? So I have the feeling. I have the material input of what it is. I have the feeling about it. I like it. I don't like it. And then I have thoughts about it. Okay? Gee, I wish it was just a little colder. Or... Um, you know, I do have this thought that I'm afraid I'm going to fall, that it's going to fall out of my hand and I'm going to drop it, so I'm going to put it down. Oh, I notice it has a sound when I put it down. Oh, that's interesting. So some more input. Oh, it's interesting. Oh, there's a, there's a thought I have about it. So there, one of the other things I'm experiencing in the experience of this glass is my thoughts about the glass. I have thoughts about the glass. Now, in fact, I started out calling this a glass of water, What makes it a glass of water? It isn't that I can touch it or that I have feelings about it or that I have thoughts about it. It's because I have a concept of glass. Glass as something that is a container that will hold something. So I have, I can perceive it as a glass of water. That's another way that we experience things. Mental formations feelings, thoughts, concepts or perception. And finally, I only know that this is true because I have, I'm conscious of it, I'm aware of it. I'm actually choosing to put my attention on it. Okay, so there are all these different ways that we experience reality. Now, why is this important? It isn't actually a concept. 
what it amounts to is that every experience we have contains all of these elements. And part of it is what I bring into the moment from these elements, right? So I already had the concept that this was glass. Nobody had to tell me it was a glass. I brought that here. Just as I brought the concept that when we come together and sit, that it's going to be quiet. And I have a whole lot of other expectations I brought into the room. Not only that, every one of you has brought your own ways of experiencing this room into the room. Now it's getting much more complex. There are many more kinds of experiences of looking at this glass, hearing about this glass. None of you gets to drink the water in the glass. But now I've got the water in the glass. How do you feel about it? Gee, I wish I had water. <laughs> I could sure use a drink right now. Right? So your experience is very different than my experience. I have, you don't have. It's just a glass of water. But this is going on all the time. And most of the time, this glass of water is sitting here, and none of us is thinking about it. We've all got something else happening. Now, if I hadn't called attention to this glass by using it as an example, would you even have seen it? Your attention would not have been drawn to the glass. Your consciousness would not be there. So that when I swung my arm out and knocked it over, it would be a surprise because none of us really noticed it was there. This is true in all of our experience. So when we talk about things as they are, the truth is it's really hard to keep track of everything that's possible to know about things as they are. This is why where we put our attention is so important. If we're looking for something, we might see it. If we're not looking for it, we might not see it. We might not notice it in the moment. And most important of all is to realize that all of these ways that you're experiencing reality are really unique to you. They're your ways of experiencing reality. And that if you don't know how you're experiencing reality or what your mind habits are like or what your mind patterns are like, you're much more likely to be reactive in a situation than paying attention to it. So let's take the example of being on the freeway this morning and coming to a complete stop and thinking, oh, no problem. I'm actually early this morning. This will be fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, my God, we've come to a complete stop. Well, all right, so I don't know how your mind works, but, you know, when you're in a situation like that, some people will say, well, it is what it is. I just have to be here and... You know, you have different, way, different ways of coping with whatever that problem is. Well, the first thing my mind does is think about, should I be getting off the freeway? This is a really bad habit of mine. <laughs> and so this morning I thought, oh, should I be getting off the freeway? So the first thing I need to do is I need more data. We're at a complete stop, and Maria needs more data. So I fool with the radio, right? I want to know... I'm going to, I, I, let's see, which ones of those AM stations have those traffic reports and, you know, it's something on the 8s or something on the 1s and, you know, and I'm searching around and I get the tail end and there's nothing about this stop. And By the way, I never got anything from that source of information, so I won't tell you all the details of how many places I searched. 
But the truth was, I was stopped, and I was not in a lane where it was easy to get off the freeway, and so my mind is going, okay, here are the options, you can stay, you can leave, you know that most of the time when you leave, you get lost. <clears throat> so, so this is what my mind is doing, it's problem solving, it's problem solving, because it's my mind habit, it's my mind habit. So I said, okay, so let's stop trying to solve this problem this morning because I know this habit of mine. I'm just going to stay on the freeway. We don't move. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Maybe today was the day I should have decided to get off the freeway. So then my mind goes to, what if I'm late? So now I'm going to try to solve the problem in the future. We're not even talking about the problem present. Now I'm going to solve the problem in the future. Who can I call? What if people think I've forgotten what if now I'm on to what do people think about me yeah what if people think that I'm just blowing them off what if they think that I just don't care whether I'm on time what if they think I'm so flaky that I've just forgotten I wonder if people are going to feel abandoned I'd hate to have people come in feeling like they've been abandoned so all of these thoughts okay now what was true is that I was aware of these thoughts I watched my mind do all these things. So I didn't have to grab any of them and pursue that thought. I did pursue the thought of who can I call for quite a long time. <laughs> but mostly, I was kind of amused by watching it. Look at that. Huh. Here she is. She's, she's on the problem-solving thing again. Yeah. <laughs> And then I just said, okay, these are all the things I'm bringing to the moment. How bad is it I'm actually early? I'm just going to ride this through. And I really let it go, which was not typical. And probably because I was thinking about this topic, I was paying a lot of attention. I was, that's where my consciousness was. I was paying attention to what I was thinking about. But the truth is, the more you know about what your habit patterns are, the less controlled you are by them the less controlled you are by them. You know, there's a, there is real freedom in knowing what your habits are. Then you can choose whether you want to continue with those habits. Right? You, don't, you don't have to be. That's one of the beauties of impermanence. There is no person who is always this way. These are just the tendencies that we have over time. You know, the tendency to take care of someone. So, so uh, I'm going to read you a short poem by Rilke from the Book of Hours. No one lives his life. Disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. You know, when we get stuck on, this is the way I am. This is the way I am. All the other aspects of our personality don't get to see the light of day. They just, you know, they're, they're like clothes hanging in a, in a closet. 
And how we see what's happening right here in this moment is very dependent on how we see ourselves, on what our typical ways of experiencing the world are. How we react, it includes our attitude of mind. So what is your mind like now? Your attitude of mind, what's it like right now? Are you curious? Are you bored? Are you tired? Are you just weary? My mind doesn't do this in the morning. I have a good friend that I sit with on Wednesday mornings, and he hates Dharma talks. He says, I just get to the place where I'm really peaceful, and then somebody wants me to think. (laughs) Is, Is that where you are this morning? Could be. The causes and conditions for what's happening in this moment are determined by what you bring into the moment. And one of the biggest things you bring into the moment is your attitude. So, we all know those days that we wake up and we are really just cranky. I just don't want anybody to say anything to me. Bring me my coffee. (laughs) Just don't say anything. And we recognize that feeling. And sometimes we get defensive about that feeling. (laughs) I have a right to. I didn't get enough sleep last night. Or sometimes we're condemning of ourselves. Oh, I shouldn't be this way. But the most important thing is actually to notice it. To notice how it's coloring whatever else is coming in. So I'm going to give you an example of something that happens between my husband and I a lot. I'm going to try to make this only about me and not about him so that, you know, I want to be fair here. Okay, so... um, there are things that happen in, in my life. I tend to make judgments a lot. This is a tendency I have. You know, it's part of this, I like this, I don't like this stuff. I have a real well-developed, I like this, don't like this part of my way of experiencing the world. So, so the neighbor has done something I don't like. And uh, I am very fortunate that I live in a place where in the morning I wake up and I look out my window from bed and what I see is the natural world. It's green, it's, I can see the sky, I can watch the sun, I know what time of year it is when I wake up immediately by the position of the sun. It's really quite beautiful. And my neighbor has put this mechanical thing in her yard that reflects sunlight. And every morning I wake up and open my eyes, and now there's this this blink of something metal in my view. And I don't like it. I want to go back to the green. It was really lovely. And every time I say something about this, my husband rushes in and says, stop being negative. You'll get used to it. Don't, don't even think about it. Just, it's just negative. It doesn't do any good to be negative about it. So he has a thing about telling me not to have negative judgments. This is just one example. Now, I've lived with my husband for 20 years. We know this about each other. We really know this about each other. So, uh, but it, what happens to me when he tells me don't have negative thoughts is I immediately want to justify my negative thought. Now, the way 
I actually process things in the absence of my husband is I'll notice that I have this negative thought. I don't like this. And then I'll usually just let it go. I have the choice of feeding it by continuing the story, justifying whatever the irritation is, or I can just say, yeah, I really don't like that. But as soon as somebody tells me, don't be negative, right away my tendency is to justify the negativity. Well, every, so I'm telling this, it, it triggers my telling the story and getting involved with the thing. Okay, so since we have this dynamic, and I know this dynamic exists, one possibility is I could never say a negative thing. But, you know, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so what other solutions are there to this tension that develops? Because I don't want to build on the negativity. I just want to process it away. So, so what I realized is that my real problem was I needed to be able to acknowledge this negative thought. I need to just say, oh, I'm having that negative thought again, and then let it go. So I now approach my husband a different way. I'll say something and he'll say, don't say that. And I'll say, you know, I don't want to pretend it's not true. I hear what you're saying, but I have to acknowledge that I had this thought in order to move on. And so what's happened is every time I say, I can't pretend it's not true, he kind of sighs and he stops. And then I stop and we can both let go of it. Now, this, so this, this way of dealing with a habit pattern of mine, a habit pattern with him, involved being able to acknowledge that it was there, and not my getting angry at him all the time for not allowing me to think what I think, which is another part of what happens in that response. Once I tell him, I just need to acknowledge this, and he says, okay, we're both free of it. Now, what I've described is both of us trying to pay attention to things as they are. Things as they are doesn't mean that it's unchangeable. It just means recognizing there's a habit pattern, there's a thought, there's a reaction, there's mutual reaction. I'm not even characterizing what he's bringing into it. Who knows, right? But because we've been together for so long, I'm very familiar with that particular pattern between us. And it behooves both of us to figure out how to live with that in a way that we can be easeful in the moment. In order to do this, you have to be you have to notice, you have to recognize, you have to acknowledge your own habit patterns. You first have to see them, and that involves paying attention. So we were with friends the other night, and uh, the woman is someone that I have known for, oh, I don't know, 35 years, something like that, long time. And she had just had her eyes done. She had plastic surgery done on her eyes to get rid of the fold because the fold was kind of causing her eyes to droop or something. I, you know, I don't know exactly what she had done. But it was interesting that she, this was something that 
really bothered her, and she really wanted to get taken care of, and she did. And uh, I was looking at her and thinking about all the ways I had seen her over the 35 years that I've known her. And I realized that there's something that happens among old friends, which is you look at them and you, you don't see just the way they are today. You see kind of an integrated person that you've known all this time. Now, this is one of the reasons it's nice to be with old friends is they remember you when you were young and juicy and sexy and firm and, you know. <laughs> they don't only see what is here right now. So this friend said to me, um, well, she said, that's why it's hard to look in the mirror. And I said, no, no, looking in the mirror is not hard. What's hard is looking at a picture, a photograph. Because in the mirror, I'm choosing what I see. I'm looking at my eyes, I'm looking at my mouth, I'm looking at my hair, I'm looking at you know, my shirt. I'm not looking at the whole thing. This is the way we see. But in a photograph... You know, it's just this little photograph you're looking at. <clears throat> you see the whole thing. <laughs> and you go, oh, who is that? <laughs> because in our minds, we also have integrated over that whole period of time. And we're very proud of the fact that we've learned something over the years. And we forget that we're not, you know, who we used to be either. We're something else. So this is another way that we see. We have very selective seeing. All of us do. What we see when we're in this room. You know, if two people walk into a room, you've got a blue room. Let's say we've got a room with blue walls. Now, I might walk into that room and I'll say, hmm, I'm really uncomfortable in this room. It feels kind of wet and it's cool. It's really cool color. I'm uncomfortable in this room. And you might say, oh, I love this pale blue wall. It... It, it make, it's very calm and peaceful. And your experience of that room and my experience of that room would be very different. And then there's what we bring into the room. You know, so maybe I've just gotten off the phone talking to somebody about their loss when I walk into this room. And it's blue and cold. and you know, It's exaggerated for me now. And maybe you've come into this room, you've just been grocery shopping, and you're just finding this room so relaxing. Now the difference between us is even greater than it was. But if we don't know how we feel about blue rooms, either of us, we're not going to know that I can't wait to get out of the room and you don't want to leave the room. And it's never spoken. And this is, some of this is, is probably unconscious. We don't even see this happening. So it behooves us to sort of pay attention to what lowers our energy or raises our energy so that we know what that feels like. So that when we feel it, we notice it. And we don't assign meaning that doesn't have anything to do with it. All right? So now we've just described the situation. There are two of us in the room. I can't wait to get out of the room. You want to stay in the room. I'm antsy. And you're thinking, oh, there's something wrong here. She doesn't like me. We've now assigned a meaning that didn't have anything to do with how we felt in the room because how we felt in the room didn't have anything to do with the interaction between us. 
But as soon as we assign a meaning that has to do with the fact that we're both in the room, now are we seeing things as they are? No. Now, now we're seeing things a different way. Let's take a case in which you're a caretaker for an elderly person. And this elderly person has a tendency to fall. And so you say, you know, you have to use your walker. You must use your walker. And the elderly person says, I don't like to use a walker. I don't need a walker. A walker is for old people. Now, the difference is you see this person and you see an old person that needs a walker. They look at the walker and say, that belongs to people that aren't me. Which of us is actually deluded? Which of us is right or wrong? Right or wrong doesn't have room here. It isn't about right or wrong. We're both experiencing something differently. The person who is the caretaker and the person being taken care of are experiencing it in a different way. And they both see the other as totally unreasonable. It's, it's important to know this distinction. You know, a, a friend of mine that I saw yesterday was, um, uh, her mother had just died. And we were in the room with her mother. And her mother was beautiful. She was really beautiful. And she said about her, she said, you know, she was always that way. She was always perfectly groomed. Her hair was always in a, in a bun, and it was always shaped the same way, and she was always dressed appropriately and very beautifully, and she always did her makeup. And, and she said she hated me for having my hair so wild. So my friend you know, has curly hair. She gets it permed and it's curly. And to her mother, it looked absolutely wild and disrespectful. You know, most of us, I mean, I think my friend is beautiful. (laughs) But her mother didn't see that when she looked at her. And that, that was a sadness between them, that they didn't see the same thing when they looked out at the world. Is a sadness. So our experience in the world is dependent on what we bring into the world, how we feel about the movement moment what we know about ourselves. If we see something positive, we don't necessarily have to become positive with it. If we see something negative, we don't necessarily have to become negative with it. It's when we get to this point of assigning meaning that all of that happens. This means this. This means this. And once you realize that somebody coming into the same room with you has a totally different experience, that maybe that decision about this is what it means might be based on kind of shaky ground. I 
And one of the reasons we've developed the, the capacity to communicate is so that we can notice these different ways in which we experience the world. But when we become too involved with our own way of seeing the world, we miss out on that. We miss that. You know, there was work done that, uh, that demonstrated that if you hear someone you consider an ideologue espousing a point of view with which you don't agree, your resistance to that idea is much higher than if you hear somebody representing it who's very reasoned and calm and quiet and has a list of why they believe a certain way. You're much more likely to listen to that point of view than if the the person who has a point of view different than yours is uh, acerbic and wild and makes broad statements. Your opinion of that point of view is even more extreme. You are more resistant based on that. So observing is not enough. You also have to know the mind you're observing with. You have to know the mind you're observing with. Be open to the possibility of how something might unfold. And don't be so sure you know what that's going to be. You know. This is what always happens, so it's going to happen again. Until it doesn't. <laughs> Until you leave open the possibility, possibility for something else to happen. If I was going to give you any piece of advice, it would be to entertain the willingness to be surprised. Not so sure. Not so sure. I ran across a poem by uh, one of my favorite poem, poets. Her name is Wislava Simborska. She's a Pole and a, a winner of the Nobel Prize for Poetry. And she wrote, this is a, a poem titled Teenager. I have a picture of her on the front, which is really delightful. She's, she looks very pleased with herself. She has a cigarette in one hand and a cup of, looks like coffee in front of her. And her eyes are half closed and she's, she just looks pleased with the world, right? And I imagine her in that, that pose with this poem. Me, a teenager? If she suddenly stood here now before me, would I need to treat her as near and dear, although she's strange to me and distant? Shed a tear, kiss her brow for the simple reason that we share a birth date? So many dissimilarities between us that only the bones are likely still the same. The cranial vault, the eye sockets. Since her eyes seem a little larger, her eyelashes are longer, she's taller, and the whole body is tightly sheathed in smooth, unblemished skin. Relatives and friends still link us, it's true, but in her world, nearly all are living. While in mine, almost no one survives from that shared circle. We differ so profoundly 
talk and think about completely different things. She knows next to nothing, but with a doggedness deserving better causes. I know much more, but not for sure. I love this poem because what she's talking about is how she has changed over the course of her life and how, how much that change is true. How close are we to who we were as children, really? You know, I like to think I'm really close, but am I? I'm actually pretty different than I was in my 20s, I can tell you that. So here it is. Me, a teenager. <laughs> the idea is absurd, right? Me, a teenager. If she suddenly stood here, now before me, would I need to treat her as near and dear, although she's strange to me and distant? Shed a tear, kiss her brow for the simple reason that we share a birth date? So many dissimilarities between us that only the bones are likely still the same, the cranial vault, the eye sockets. Since her eyes seem a little larger, her eyelashes are longer, she's taller, and the whole body is tightly sheathed in smooth, unblemished skin. Relative and friends still link us, it's true, but in her world, nearly all are living. While in mine, almost no one survives from that shared circle. We differ so profoundly, talk and think about completely different things. She knows next to nothing, but with a doggedness deserving better causes. I know much more, but not for sure. In this is wisdom. Recognizing those things that have brought us to this moment, but not so much identifying with them. Not so much saying, this is who I am. And above all, not being so sure. Thank you. So I welcome any thoughts that this might have engendered or questions or issues. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. This Saturday is my high school. We're having a West. I'm from the East Coast. And we're having a West Coast and East Coast reunion. And this Saturday's the West Coast reunion. And so we'll meet it up in Marin and be at a like picnic and gathering. And it's kind of all about teenagers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like. I have no idea. I mean, was, I mean, I have so so different in some ways. In some ways, maybe not so different. But it's interesting that we're going to do a show and tell, and the thing that I'm going to present, I've done a lot of work on, and it's, it has to do with music, and it's something that I still am involved with. I mean, I was just at a a Beatles imitation thing up in Redwood City on Friday night, and there were people from IMC there, too, and it's cool. We were dancing along and listening to Beatles stuff. It's like, that's what I, so much part of my life as a teenager. But at that time, I know because of my circumstances and who I was, 
I had a small view of the world, and I was could not entertain a lot of other possibilities. And I don't think I could even really entertain what that poem is talking about. Well, I'm not so sure. Is this really all there is? It's like I needed to see that this is kind of all there is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, out of a lot of fear and a lot of distress in my life. And so I guess I'm thankful that from all I've gone through for the, all these decades that I can say, okay, I'm a little less sure about things, but I'm a lot bigger in some ways. Yeah, a lot bigger. You know, the, there's a lot to be said for that, a lot bigger part. That what we do when we understand what we bring into the room is we create more space. You know, have, you, have you ever thought about how far your awareness actually stretches? One, one good way to do that is with sound. What's the farthest away sound you hear? Your awareness goes at least that far. Some people, a, a woman was talking to me yesterday about how she feels energy from people. And her ability to feel people is very well developed, and she can feel them at, a, at quite a range. Other people, their awareness is extended through their sight, what I see. And as you get older, it's one of the things you lose, is that ability to see further, to see clearly. You know, when I take my glasses off, I can see almost nothing. I see colors. <laughs> barely, I can barely see shapes. We all have these ways of interacting with the world. And we're very used to looking at how things feel, how they, how they sound, how they look. We're used to taking in information by our senses. But we're not so used to paying attention to all the other ways that we're taking in information through our attitude, through our thoughts, through our patterns of behavior, through our concepts. It's worth noting these are the ways that we take in information because these are also all the ways that we create ourselves. This is how we create a self that we say is, you know, this is who I am. It's through an accumulation of those experiences, and they involve concepts and consciousness. That is what we're paying attention to. I might say, for example, that I'm somebody that talks with my hands because I'm noticing that my hands are out like this. But it's also my hands are out to the side as they are because I'm feeling an energy in the room right now that that makes me want to expand it. That's the real reason my hands are out here. It isn't because I talk with my hands. It's, it's a physical feeling that I have. Now, it's important for me to not put a lot of meaning on it. It just is what's happening right now. Notice what's happening now. Notice the way you're taking in energy. Notice the way you're taking in information. Be aware of the fact that everybody else is doing the same thing. (laughs) And maybe cut them a little slack. (laughs) 
Don't be so sure you know what the meaning is of what's happening. This means this. This person is looking off to the side. It must mean they don't want to look at me. Maybe it just means they have a crick in their neck. (laughs) Or maybe it means if I'm looking at you, I can't think about what I need to think about right now. I need to turn my head so that I can really get a picture of it. There are so many possibilities, so many possibilities. Any other thoughts? Yes, here we go. I'm uh, reading a teacher who says that uh, the mind is the greatest deceiver and that uh, encouraging, uh, encouraging me, I'm the one who's reading, um, not to identify with my mind but to uh, stay in the present moment. The mind is always, well, most always is either past or future. You need to use the mind, and and you have to use time. If you're planning something, you have to have some sense of time. But there's a psychological time which is of no use at all. The past and the future, even the past, I'm beginning to see that in the past, and there's been an encounter with someone else. And my view of it is just my view. The other person brings all of the other stuff, and so to letting go of it, and the only way uh, that I know how to get, let go of it is to just breathe and to just recognize the breath is coming in and coming down to my stomach. And in staying in that moment, it takes away some of the power that the past and the future has. Yeah, that's and, great. Uh, I, it, it's good advice for me. It came just at the right time. I read this book. This is about the third time I've read it. And it's helpful. If I want to live in the moment, I have to let go of, of those things, the past and the future. You need to use future, your planning, all of those things. You need to use uh, time, but not the psychological time. And I have worshipped my time my whole life my, I, I don't like to be late. I don't like to be early because of <laughs> my time. That might be two minutes that I need. I'm very, very selfish of that. And uh, so I, I, I listened to it and I heard it. Sometimes you can't re- get what you're reading or what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm ready to listen. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I particularly liked what you said about... Um, just taking a breath. Because doing that brings you right here, right now. That's, that's it. It's just right here, right now. And the more you're right here, right now, the less controlled you are by what you think about it. You, the less likely you are to assign meaning to something that you should not be assigning meaning to. Or the selfing action of, because I've had this thought, I'm this way, that the thought is. And freeing yourself of that and recognizing this is a thought, this is a thought, this is a thought. And it only has power when I feed it or when I grab onto it, if I hold it some way. So that's a very beautiful 
thought. Thank you. He says we're thinking, thinking just happens to us. Like digestion happens to us. We don't digest. But to start to think of my mind stuff as just happening like digestion. And then I can decide whether, you know, what good it's doing me. Especially if it's angry at something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So part of, part of what we were talking about last week was doing equanimity practice, which is a way of coming to understand what equanimity feels like so that then you can recognize it when you need it. And in, in response to someone's question last week, there was a question about uh, doing meta practice when you're angry, for example, and uh, how, how valuable this was for them. And they weren't so sure that they could take on equanimity practice too. And, and what we talked about after that was recognizing the place for both of those things so that when I'm in a situation where it's angry, where there's anger, I have lots of ways of dealing with it. But if it feels out of control, then I do meta practice for myself to soften my heart because I know what that feels like. And when my heart is soft, I'm less likely to do something I regret or say something I regret. And then there is room for equanimity or ease in the situation. Once I've softened my heart, then I can settle into equanimity. And now I know what that feels like, too. I know what it feels like to be at ease with things that are not the way I want them to be. Okay, so our time is up. May you all be surprised at what you discover as you learn more about yourself and about the people you love, which I hope is everyone. Thank you.